Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Winderlich Podcast. Welcome to episode one for season nine. This episode was recorded on Thursday, the 11th of April, 2019. This episode is sponsored by Triple Byte. I am Jen, here with my WWDC-bound season host, Drew Freeman. Thanks, Jen. On this episode, we have James Dempsey. James is a 15-year Apple veteran gone indie. At Apple, he was an evangelist, technical trainer, curriculum manager, software engineer, working on Aperture, iOS, macOS releases, Leopard through Lion. James recently set back out on his own after working to build a cloud computer for humankind's information at Up There. He's also the frontman of James Dempsey and The Breakpoints, a band that performs humorous original songs about technical topics. Their debut album, Backtrace, topped the iTunes comedy chart in the US, UK, Canada, and reached number five on the Billboard comedy album chart. You can always check him out at jamesdempsey.net. In this episode, we're going to talk about when things go wrong, exceptions, errors, and other mishaps. Then later, Drew talks about nesting turtles all the way down to hell. Hi. James, I'm really thrilled that you could join us today. It's... It's it's an honor to have you join us because I as I, I talked to you before the show I've I've known you on some level for close to fifteen years and you were doing the music back then too yeah uh, the first WWDC I did a song at was two thousand and one and then from that point on pretty much every year I did a session at WWDC while I was at Apple and also an original song and then after leaving Apple I thought since those were always one song a year. That was my gig. Maybe people would like to hear two or three songs in a row. We started doing live near WWDC, uh, which is a full concert of all of the songs that I've written. And uh, we're in our eighth year coming up uh, in June. And for the last four years, we've been doing the show as a benefit concert for App Camp for Girls. Yay. Yay. Yeah. And uh, James has also performed at the RW DevCon the past few years. And it's it's quite wonderful. If you have not listened to James's music and you're a developer for for iOS and in general it's really great because it's concept set to music the one i was discussing earlier is the model view controller's song um yeah and that one um originally was done um iOS wasn't even a thing at that point this was 15 years ago, did I say? This is Objective-C. This is Objective-C. But the nice thing about design patterns is that they're not necessarily language-specific. Mm-hmm. And certainly the Cocoa frameworks and the Cocoa Touch frameworks um, are kind of based on these ideas of model view controller. Um, this was before the days of massive view controller, <laughs> um, which people complain oh, about. No. Wait till I get onto my section later. I'll talk to about nested view controllers from hell. And at the time, uh, it was there were two verses about the controller because the new feature were these cocoa bindings um, which lets you to like basically eliminate the glue code that we often have to write now in iOS apps. Um, but after the fact, years later, it always bugged me to have a model verse, a view verse, and Two controller verses. This should be one, right? This, um, so that got kind of re 
factored um, into one verse that's a little more generic about controllers. Um, so it's been interesting, like over the years, the songs kind of morph a little bit to keep up to date. So will there be a model view, view model song coming out at some point? Um, probably not, because then I'd have to do a Viper song, which would take like 15 hours. <laughs> Have like three hundred verses. Um, oh no! Um, it could be an old time. It could be an old time religion song where you just keep adding new verses to new it. New verses to every single time. Yes, exactly. Which leads us to to things going wrong. Obviously, so you want to talk to us today about when things go wrong. When, especially when you sit down to write an app, right? You're thinking about the user experience you're trying to provide. You're thinking about you know the happy path for the user. And sometimes you maybe give short shrift or you don't maybe think as much about when things are going wrong and what are the tools available to you or the techniques available to you. Because often when things go wrong, right, that might be when the user needs your help the most because um, things are not going as expected. And I think sometimes it's important just to take a step back and, and think about how your app or how your project is handling when things aren't going right. Can you give me an example to dive us into that? Sure. So you have an app that relies on the network and then the user gets on an airplane. And so all your networking calls come back as errors because there's no network available. You know, someday the service you're using suddenly starts sending back some JSON that is incorrect. And so you're JSON parser blows up and it's nothing that you did wrong, but your app shouldn't crash just because something went wrong on the server. You need to provide some way to gracefully degrade and give the user some sort of experience besides crashing. See, I don't know if it's the Eastern European in me, but I always assume the worst case when I'm writing software and depending <laughs> on somebody else. So I'm always having, okay, so so what happens if this fails or that fails or the other thing fails? I, I, I know that I've, I've gone long on some of my estimates because I'm, I, I'm more interested in the fail cases than the succeed cases. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, very often, like once you start thinking about it, the fail cases, there's many, many more of them than the one happy path of everything going right. So it potentially takes up a fair amount of time that you might not put into your estimate or that many folks might not put into their estimate um, because they're thinking about everything going right and things don't always go right. So do you suggest a, a system for for how to, to do the process of making sure you're covering bases? Um, well, I think one of the nice things we get with uh, in Swift are APIs that are throwing exceptions, or excuse me, throwing errors, not exceptions in Swift. Any APIs that throw is a good hint that, yes, something could go wrong here, but then other things like you've written this photo app, for instance, that relies on the camera and on your onboarding, the user gives you permission to use the camera. But then a week later, they go into settings and turn off permission to use your camera. Well, what are you going to do? Again, you need to provide some kind of graceful experience. It's pretty much just trying to think of the worst case scenario of what am I doing and what could possibly go wrong here? And then what am I going to 
how do I present that to the user? What do I do in the app? I don't know, but sometimes you have those cases that are like the code with the log statement, the code should never get here. Um, well, what should you do if the code does get there? <laughs> like sometimes you just log, but we know that once we put something out into the world, we don't see those log statements. So if a certain number of customers are getting them, maybe you should, if you're using analytics, report it somehow. Think through those bad cases, essentially. One of the things that I I don't see a lot of in software, you see it more in games than anything else, and it surprises me, is version requirements. In other words, it touches base with the server. The server says, you don't have the latest version of the software. You should update or this app won't necessarily work. And I find that it's annoying to the end user that may not necessarily want to update, but if you have a critical update... There's nothing better than saying there is an update available because in, a lot of people tend to forget in the world of mobile, somebody can download your game or your app and it's out there forever. Mm -hmm. Or it's out there until Apple says we no longer support 32-bit and they're wondering why their app doesn't work anymore because they haven't taken the, the time to go back to the app store and find out they've got 5,000 updates available. And there's, um, yeah, there's that strategy for especially when your back end changes the server side api changes um you can potentially like have a version that straddles the two um but that's a fair amount of work um you can leave an old api around for a little while potentially but yeah once again that cutoff or being able to say this is no longer valid and having your the app that you already shipped you can't go back and stick that code in after the fact right it has to True. it has to be already coded to deal with the fact that the api version may change and the user might need to go get a new version so that's uh yet yeah, another thing that you need to kind of think about before you ship because you can't put the error handling in after you ship especially when the error handling is telling them they need a new version because you'd have to ship it in a new version that they don't know to download because you didn't tell them. Yeah, I mean, it, the App Store has done wonders for the ability to have automatic updating turned on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, James, you and I both remember a time easily when the idea of automatic updating consisted of finding one of those third-party tools that sort of user-collected the information and said, I think your app may now have an update. <laughs> no. But other than that, you were you were on your own. Oh, yeah. How inefficient. <laughs> Did not know at all. Um, well, in fact, uh, I think classic Mac OS is one of the first that had... Uh, software updates way mm -hmm. way back when and before that you were scrounging around to find cds cd-roms <laughs> or stacks of floppies <laughs> i have to say that as much as i loved swift's syntax i'm still not sold on catch let error okay that that syntax that syntax just sort of i don't know it gnaws at me as it just doesn't feel right I don't know why. Well, for me, I'm I I'm not a big fan of the the uh, keyword do mm. like a do block. It's just I don't know. It just seems kind of like. Well, for me, it's a do while block, not a do do catch block. Oh sure, sure. Um, it's just I I never even like do while block. Like do is just such a 
mamby pamby kind of keyword. I don't know. <laughs> it reminds me when programs were pretty much written in just a do while, mm -hmm. like old old style code. Oh yeah, like the event where you ran your own event loop. Yes, the event loop. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's what it reminds me of. I think the problem that I have with catch let is that most of the stuff that throws doesn't tell you what kind of an error it's throwing. Yes. And there are some things that will throw an NS error. There are some things that will throw a Swift error. But the documentation very rarely tells you what type of thing is going to be thrown. Yes. Um, and that is one of the... I don't want to say it's an oddity, but it definitely is one of the places where you don't have any hints in the language itself, um, where in Java, it'll tell you what kind of exception is being thrown. Mm -hmm. In this case, you kind of are on your own, and the only thing you really do know about it is that it's it conforms to the error protocol, which is, there's there's not much to that protocol. It's not like the protocol has a hinting place in it to say, hey, here's a name of class or something that you can pull from the error protocol. Right. So then you need to either know the API you're using based on the documentation, even though there's no API contract, right? Something that currently throws an NS error doesn't have to continue. There's nothing in the API that says it has to. Um, so you can't hard code your code to like as exclamation point things, or you shouldn't, because that's dangerous. Um, then you're just making things go wrong when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I as question mark a lot. I, I optional as my error mm -hmm. a lot just to say, okay, are you up? Let my error optional as an NS error. Does it work? Does it not work? And there is some bridging between NS error and error, which makes that even more annoying. Um, and they introduced a new, um, is it a localized error? protocol that yeah. has it it more closely covers the ns error api um and so even if somebody's not using ns errors in their own api hopefully they're throwing something that's a localized error that conforms to that protocol so you could treat those the same as an ns error and get more information out of the error itself um in the original Cocoa APIs, um, the error is specifically meant to be something that's user presentable, whereas an exception is meant to be something where the programmer has made, has screwed up, has made an error. It's a programming mistake. Um, and so... In Swift, they went very strongly that if the programmer makes a mistake, you just kill the kill the process. You just mm -hmm. fatal fa the the unfortunately named fatal error, which is not an error. <laughs> that it's naming is a little screwy. It's an exception that just kills the that just there's no kills way to process, catch yeah. catch an exception. Um, whereas back in Objective C, you could you could catch an exception. Um, I think that's a potential uh, piece of confusion for new developers to Swift coming from another environment where you kind of try and catch 
exceptions, and those can be programmer error exceptions or things like in Java, they had an end of file exception, which always struck me as funny as if like, oh, it never happens that a file ends. It's such an <laughs> exceptional situation. Oh, it's a text file and we got to the end of it. Oh my gosh, that's such a, who who knew? Um, so I like that distinction in the, the frameworks and now in the Swift language between like the programmer mistake where things just blow up and the philosophy being that things blow up quickly, you die in development, and then you find your errors a lot sooner and fix them as opposed to these other excuse me, programming mistakes. I'll use the word mistake instead of error since the terminology is confusing. You find your programmer mistakes quickly and fix them as opposed to swift errors, which are things that have gone wrong, but they're not your fault as a developer. They're just the world is an unfriendly place sometimes and the network gets turned off or what have you. So these are errors that you might want to tell the user about, hey, we can't do anything because we don't have a network connection or there seems to be some problem with the information we're receiving from the server, maybe try again later, or maybe send us an email of feedback to let us know. Um, But those are things that shouldn't kill your app. Those are things where you should take some action as a developer. Um, And I think I very much like that distinction. Um, I also think that Swift, does a fairly nice job in its APIs, even though we might, uh, excuse me, in its syntax, it's not necessarily API, the do, catch, etc., um, of letting us deal with errors. What are your thoughts on try question mark? I have thought of using it from time to time, but in general, I tend to believe that if I'm going to be testing something that's going to fail, I want it to fail and I want to keep it consistent throughout. I gotcha. Try question mark just really makes me feel like it, may, it makes me feel like I'm doing a an unwrap when I'm not checking. It, it just it, it, it doesn't make me comfortable at this point. I gotcha. And sometimes I'll use try question mark when I'm prototyping just because I really don't care what the error was and I'm opening a file or something that I know is there. So I'm pretty sure it's not going to be an error. Um, the other time I would think about using it in production is if no matter what the error would be returned, I would be doing the same thing for the user, right? So if like in the catch statement, there are different types of errors that I'm catching and depending on what that error is, I'm like presenting a different message to the user, um, then the explicit catches I think are great. Um, If I'm just, no matter how this fails, I'm just going to say, uh, sorry, we wouldn't connect. We couldn't connect to the network. Um, It seems like a lot of syntactic overhead just to get to the point that, oh, we had a result or we called something, we got something back that was not, that was an error. We don't care what the error is. So I might as well just, treat it like an optional and if it's nil I know we had an error and 
do the one thing that I was going to do. James, it's a really good way to look at not just getting the apps. I think you put it really well right at the top is not just looking at the one good path, but knowing all the potential ways that the bad paths will come up and pretty much bite us every time. Absolutely. So we're going to take a short break uh, for a message from our sponsor, Triple Byte. But when we return, I'm going to talk about how I actually tried to dig myself into the hole by nesting controllers all the way down until I hit turtles. And we'll be back right after this. The RayWenderLick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. This RayWenderlich.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater, and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash ray. That's triplebyte.com, byte, B-Y-T-E, as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Thanks again to Triple Byte for sponsoring this episode. And now we'll kick it back to Drew so he can tell us his experience in Code Hades. Oh, I'm not sure if it was completely Hades, but it, it definitely went in directions I wasn't expecting. As always, I figured this season it'd be good to talk about personal programming projects, um, not because I'm using this as a springboard to get help on my own software, but I figure if I can talk about simple problems or sometimes complicated problems, it may touch a, a chord with other people and they can say, yeah, maybe this is a good idea or a bad idea or, or both. This specific section of a, a program I'm working on is something that will actually Actually display the I Ching. And I thought it would be nifty to display the I Ching, but be able to, oh, page through it. Now, to explain how the I Ching works, which is completely non-developer, you throw some random numbers, and then it picks a random number from 1 to 64. But there's a small chance that that 1 to 64 number may create a second number 1 to 64. And what you want to see is some values about that number or both of them, as the case may be. So I decided, okay, I'm going to look at this thing through a UI view controller that's going to have a container view that holds a page controller. And the reason for the page controller is I could swipe back and forth between the one and the two. And then on that page controller that was swiping back and forth on, I put a table. So now I've got a table on a page thing. And this is sort of well, not necessarily the best concept, because now you can move your UI in four different directions. You can move it up and down, or you can move it left and right, depending on where you move it left and right. Needless to say, also, putting all of these individual view controllers together 
is an interesting feat in making sure that everything's connected in the right place and passing information up and down the right way. James, have I scared you yet, or does this sound like a normal day at work? That sounds like an iOS project. <laughs> it sounds like the house that Jack built. Like, that's the app that Drew built. You know, it it really it, it really is one of those things. It, it is the, the app that one built that you start... Yeah, I, I found that, that working with this, the best way to do it was to start with each individual tier of this. Start with the first controller and put in the container view that... I always have to be careful because I'm one of those people who never remembers vocabulary words. I took French for five years because I had a great accent but could not remember my vocabulary words. So I'm one of those people who will call a scroller, a slider, a scroller, a controller, a container collection. Just those words all like to tangle in my head. And that's why we hire people who are in their 20s, not in their 50s, because the synapses slow down. And we just don't care. But the container view let me put a page view in and... I find that one of the things that drives me crazy about UI table view controller and UI page view controller is that that's what your dedicated UI interface on that entire controller is. You can't add to that controller. In other words, a UI table view controller has a table on it. You're done. Yes, that's um, I've been working on something that I can't talk about just yet. Um, but yeah, I needed to I needed to put some stuff alongside or above a table view. And you can try to hack it, but that view controller is really, really wants to be just a table view. And so your options are either you can subclass plain old view controller and try to, and use it as a table view controller. Um, but then you lose the few things that table view controller does itself. Um, or I ended up having to kind of embed it in yet mm -hmm. another view controller, which is probably the approach you had to take too. Um, container view. Yes. Um, but then I lost something. Um, there's something that oh, I forget what it was now off the top of my head, but there's, there's something that, in terms of the, was it the scroll view in the table view? There was something, oh, it was you, something you to do the, with the, the section, the section scroller? No, it section was, scrubber. I, I think it was the insetting um, of the table view working correctly. It mm -hmm. knew that it, prior, it knew that it was inside of uh, its parent, but now there was an intermediary view controller. So mm -hmm. it lost a bit of automatic sizing behavior, um, yeah. which then I had to re-implement. One of the things that I find that I have to do when I try to embed a table of view controller is that I have to turn off the separators because mm. the separators think they know where the edge of the view is. They're inside a table view controller. They assume they are the main table view, so they will set their their width in their own their own damn way. Um, and I will typically wind up telling it not to display separators and then putting separators in my table cells. Oh, I see. And the reason that I did this whole mess was that when you're looking at the I Ching, you look at this, uh, this random 64 is made up of six lines made up of two possibilities, two to the sixth. 
except you can look at it as a set of six lines, or you can look at it as two sets of three lines, and those two sets of three lines each have their own little meanings, and each of the sets of six lines have their own meaning. And what I wanted to do was have, because it's not crazy enough to put a text, a table view in there, I had to put a text view in there, which is the completely multi-sizing text, not a label, so that I could have the actual displayed graphic, Unicode, at the top, in the section header, and as you page through the text below it, the header would stay locked to the top and you could still see the image at the top. So now I have a table view with text that can scroll, the table view can scroll, and the table view is on a page that can page back and forth. I think pretty much anybody at Apple would look at me and go, that's not how our UX is supposed to work. That's that's <laughs> really, that's not. Because you really, it depends how your finger hits the page and where your finger hits the page because you're actually able to scroll in a table cell as scroll a table as a whole. Yeah, I think just that makes it compl like complicated for the user also. Um, mm -hmm. You see that a lot... It, that shows up in uh, a lot of web pages too, right? Where you're trying to mm -hmm. scroll and then you're in and you can't figure out how to get to the end of the article because whatever you're, sc you're scrolling the wrong thing somehow. Um, and that's frustrating in a web page. I could see it being frustrating for the user a little bit on the, uh, in, in a table view with scrollable text in each, um, cause then you have to get your tap target very right. And then potentially it be, might maybe better to drill down to read all that extra detail. Yeah, and unfortunately, you then take in that concept. Well, how long do you want people? How how many clicks do you want somebody have to endure to get all the information? Right, exactly. So I I really think that I may just limit it to not having a table view per se, but having locked text at the top, scrollable text view below it, and then maybe buttons so you can choose what specific thing you're viewing. But that doesn't change the fact that I may still have to have a page nation swipe between magical numbers one and magical number two. Um, and then another thing you might consider is um, instead of using a table view inside of a page, a page thing, possibly a collection view where you have multiple rows and columns where the columns are what you would currently have as pages. As always, I'm I'm doing all of my UX design on an iPhone SE because I figure somebody is going to try to use this app with the smallest imaginable phone. Mm -hmm. That's how I always design my UI is, you know, and like, like, like a lot of developers, I, of course, you know, I go grab the expensive device so that I can have all the bells and whistles to play with on my device. And for testing purposes, I'm like, Oh good. Now I can do this and I can play with that. But I remember that the average person is not going to have that device. The average person is going to have, whatever device they get on their hands. And as a result, you have to make sure that your text is going to fit. One of the things that I'm just beginning to do, and this this is a three-year-old project, give or take a year when it was set down, but I'm beginning to convert a lot of stuff that was originally hard-coded text, not hard-coded strings, but the hard-coded labels to being um, the standard font sizes that they offer. Oh, so the using dynamic text. Yeah, because when I switch over to the iPad, everything is still iPhone sized, and that doesn't work at all. Oh, that would yeah, that would definitely be nicer to be resized. And then also for folks who maybe have accessibility 
um, mm-hmm. want very large sizes, um, or even just people getting their eyes are getting a little older. So you want, you know, I have no idea of what you speak. The large size. Some people like to crank it down to the small font size, so they have as much as much density <laughs> as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, that dynamic text. Uh, or excuse me, dynamic type API has also come along a lot since it was first mm-hmm. introduced. Um, when I f- when it first came out, you basically had to manually update things. Um, now the type changes happen automatically for the system mm-hmm. font, and if you had not the system font was the font you're using in your app, you pretty much had to come up with your own table of like lookup yeah. table. Um, and now there's a way that you can set up other fonts and the system will um, take that into account and you don't have to do it as manually anymore. And there is a fantastic dub dub video from, I think, 16, where they talk about not merely dynamic type, but the design considerations they put into the font mm-hmm. with the kernings, with the mm-hmm. ligatures to make sure that when those letters are bold or when they're italicized or when they're not bold, but small, that they are still very readable. That was a very interesting session. Uh, when San Francisco was introduced, basically, yes. right, as the system font. Um, what I found very interesting also was that they talked a lot about that and they showed you this slide in many different sessions of like that font in many different, like, increasing sizes and they had that slide showed and they said dynamic type a lot but there was very little information about the api or what you're supposed to do with it um mm-hmm. thankfully that's mm-hmm. kind of uh changed and they've improved it over the over the last was it four years now yeah yeah was it yeah i guess it was uh 15 or 16 when they introduced san francisco um but yeah, I have that that endless list of things that I should have been doing since the beginning on my app. The the dynamic type is something I should have been doing. But then again, like I said, I started it three years ago, and mm-hmm. I originally started it as my beat myself into using Swift. I said, this is a project I'm going to start from scratch in Swift. I taught myself Swift on this app, so there's whole sections of this app that just... I dread going back to, we talked about in the first half about, Mm -hmm. you know, writing nice, clear, concise code. Um, There's, I mean, I I tried doing some code cleanup this week because I was doing uh, code coverage tests on one of my classes. And I said, why, why is this class even codable? Oh, well, why, 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 why is this class following, following coding? And I took it out and the program promptly crashed. And I was like, oh yeah, now I remember why. (laughs) I think that, uh, Ugly code that works is so much better than pretty code that doesn't. Pretty code that doesn't work really still isn't. Well, it's code. It's just not an app. (laughs) Yes. It just doesn't do what you want it to do. Oh, I did actually have a question for you, which is this structure of view controllers at the kind of the top level of your app. Um, Are you setting it up? In a storyboard or programmatically? I am doing it programmatically. And the reason is that I have a very stylized interface. Okay. It's meant to basically be a Swiss Army knife of five or six different utilities. So it's got this uh, graphic on the front page that's a six-pointed star. 
with menu items right at each corner, which let me tell you, putting that into auto layout, you line up, you know, lining a graphic up, that's basically a square graphic, that's easy. Lining up the labels to find the points on a graphic star, that's not as easy. So No, I made that the would thing not be easy. I made the thing geometric. There's a lot of programmable computations being done to say, yes, this should be one-seventh up the page, two-thirds across the page. And that way... After a long time, it now uh, rotates. It fits both the iPad and the iPhones. It's it, it, the font size is resized, but but again, a lot of it is done with segways. It's not done with um, with navigation. Gotcha. Um, but it's it's a stylistic choice. It could be done as such, but it it fits the style of the app. Oh, very. That sounds very cool. It'd be interesting to. Uh... Yeah. Or at least until I go to WWDC and the uh, and the guys from the UX review take a look at it and go, "What is this crap?" Oh, we, I think over the years we've all seen some apps that are like, but then they're like top sellers, and it's like, oh well, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, it's always great to have good design, I think, but sometimes over the course of, like, the years, good design doesn't always mean you're going to have a successful product and. Somehow a successful product doesn't always have the best design, as long as it's compelling in some way. Um, but of course, it's always best to have both. <laughs> and it sounds cool. It does. And that's it. The the I Ching is actually only one of the, the six main pillars of this entire app. I, I like to refer to it mm. as a... a a a Wiccan or a pagan Swiss Army knife, and that it has a section on divination, <laughs> it has a section on astronomy, astrology, etc. And a corkscrew. And a corkscrew. <laughs> it always has to have a corkscrew, or it can't open the cheap champagne. That's right. Or it can't be a Swiss Army knife without a corkscrew. Um, no, that sounds very cool. Um, so yeah. are you, in the other sections, are you having kind of similar view controller conundrums or are those you know, more straightforward it's, it's interesting each one is its own beast for example the one on astronomy was really just a big collection view um so that i could show you each planet and each planet would tell you you know where is the planet in the in the sky where uh, are the next aspects when is the moon going to be full when do the seasons change etc one of them is actually just a gigantic clock of the sky showing you where the sun and the moon are in live time. It just It's really just one view. But this section on the I Ching, because there's randomization, there's mm -hmm. throwing random numbers in the way that people would do this to, uh, to divine these random numbers. And it's so nice that Apple actually finally has a random number generator that's got a nice, simple, succinct API to use it. I have reasons for the decisions I've made. I wish I could say it has good design, but this is one of those projects of my own love for myself where I am the develop the, the, the lead developer architect. I am the lead designer with not a designer myself. I am the PM who constantly tells myself to try to follow sprints. And I don't. Oh dear. I even use Jira and I, I've got my bugs in sort of a, what am I going to work on for the next two weeks? And mm -hmm. then I get distracted. And if I could just hire three or four other people who would wait to get paid until I ship my app. Or find some VC. 
Yes. Yeah, but then they tell me what they want the app to actually be. That's true. You kind of sell your sell your soul when you do that. No, but I think for a uh, especially for a passion project app, perfection is definitely the uh, the uh, the enemy of of the good. It's it's much better to have an app that you like, you use, and you're proud of for yourself for your own reasons, um, uh, and put it out into the world than to have everything be perfect. It's always good to take a step back from something you've been working on and see where it is and how it fits together. James, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this evening. It's, it's uh, as I said, an honor to have you here. I, I look forward to the next time we run into each other. Also, can you talk again about your performance in June? Oh, absolutely. So uh, the week of WWDC in San Jose, Wednesday, June 5th, uh, we'll be doing live near WWDC, a benefit concert for App Camp for Girls. You do not need to have a WWDC ticket to come to our show. Uh, the URL is live near WWDC.com. Um, go there for all the info. And uh, there is a ticket that the, all the proceeds go to App Camp for Girls. And it's a fantastic show. Last year, we had like 18 different musicians on stage, guitarists, violin, cello, drums. It's just, it's a wild, fun time. And then uh, a full uh, open bar is included with your ticket. So it's quite the party. Sounds like a group. I am definitely looking forward to attending it. Yeah, it sounds like a great time. I, I look forward to seeing you there. It is. We have a great time every year. James, I want to thank you again. That is going to draw things to a close for this first episode of Season 9. We'll be back in two weeks. Our guest is going to be Erica Sadoon. And we want to once again thank Triple Byte for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wendelick Podcast. But until our next episode... We go back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.